This is Pastor Mike Fabares with Focal Point Ministries. I trust that the following recorded sermon will be a benefit and a challenge to your walk with Christ. For more information about Focal Point Ministries, log on to focalpointradio.org or call us toll-free at 888-320-5885. Isaiah chapter 40. Isn't it amazing how in our day and perhaps this time of the year, as much as any, you ask people how they're doing. If you ask them how they're really doing, you get past all the polite verbiage. People seem to immediately gravitate to how tired they are. Oh, I'm just busy, you know. I'm just I'm working hard, just trying to keep up. Just really tired. I need a break, need some time off. It seems that everybody is chronically tired in our culture, and I've got a good solution for you. It's called Compass Night. It's called Compass Night when we're studying theology proper. I know that we have quoted this passage many times. I heard John quote it again last week. Isaiah 40 is the center of so much of our theology proper because it's a transition. You students of the Bible know that we transition from Isaiah 39 to Isaiah 40 into a whole new section of the book. And it begins with an emphasis on the attributes, the nature, the majesty, the transcendence of God. And we quote it all the time because Isaiah is just going off as a conduit of God's information to his people. We'd been through some bad chapters in Isaiah. And then he says, listen, you got to think about God. If you think about God, even though things are hard for you, even though things are are really hard for you, and they were, they were about to go off to captivity, God will uh, renew your strength. God can change your heart, can empower you. And the focus is on uh, understanding God rightly. So my contention is if you study God and you understand your maker and your creator and you deepen and enrich your understanding of the God who made you, the promise of this text holds true. It will have an energizing effect on your heart. It can be refreshing, empowering, motivating, invigorating. To catch the tail end of this boasting on God's attributes, look at verse 25, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 25. God speaks through Isaiah and says, to whom will you compare me? Who's my equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes, look to the heavens. Who created all of these? Who brings out the starry host one by one, calls them each by name. Because of his great power and his mighty strength, not one of them is missing. But why do you say, O Jacob? Why do you complain, O Israel? Oh, my way's hidden from the Lord. I'm just a run down. It's just awful. My cause, you know, I just wish God would help me. My cause is disregarded by my God. Don't you know? Haven't you heard? That Yahweh is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary. His understanding no one can fathom. Well, we've already been through about 27 verses of trying to fathom him more, deepen our understanding of him. And then here's the upshot, verse 29. He gives strength to the weary and he increases the power of the weak, even though Youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. And when the prophecy of Isaiah came true, and in a number of years the Israelites were hauled off to Babylon, we see pictures of men like Daniel and their Babylonian names, 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego standing strong, being invigorated even in the worst of circumstances. So I don't know what your life is like, but I hope that tonight as we are really, we're week six now in the heart of our study of the attributes and nature of God, that you will leave refreshed. And to that end, let's pray. Let's start our night with prayer. God, I know that with the curse, with the fall, post-Genesis 3 life, we are subject to being tired. Life is difficult. The suffering and pain of this uh, planet, the entropy of our biological encasement that we're in, our bodies, we are, uh, we're subject to being tired. And in our day of constant noise and activity, most of us here, if we get past the polite verbiage of our greetings, we would admit that we are, we're tired. Middle of our fall, 2008, I pray that as we turn our attention each Thursday night to the God who is transcendent, who made us, you God, the one who sustains us and gives us life that we would find strength from the inside out. That because of our focus on a majestic and perfect God that we would have in our lives, a kind of strength that would make young people scratch their heads and and, and not understand why we are so empowered and invigorated from the inside out. God, I pray that as we just take these three attributes tonight and camp our minds on these and try and deepen our understanding of them and understand with clarity how they're propositionally supported in Scripture that we would would just have our minds cleansed and, and refreshed. As Tozer rightly said, there's nothing we can do with our minds that is more noble. There's no higher end of the use of our brain power than to think about you. So I pray tonight, God, as we get to the the real central issue of what it is to be Christians, eternal life is to know you, the only true God, that we would be refreshed in our hearts. We want to walk and not grow weary. We want to run and not faint. We want to have in our hearts and in our lives a source of energy that comes from pondering the eternal, transcendent, majestic God of the universe. So God, do that for us tonight. If there's sin in the way, we want to start our night by praying to you and asking you for cleansing and forgiveness. There's some holdout in the corner of our lives that we, mortal, fallen, frail people, are holding back from you, God. It just, it's, it's silly. It's ridiculous. We want to put it on the, uh, on the altar, so to speak. No matter what you demand, whether it's uh, our son, the only son, the son that we love, as you said to Abraham, we want to lay everything on the altar and say that we're here to serve you and to love you. And as we do, God, and say no to idolatry and sin and compromise, as we repent and turn from those things and reach out to you, I pray that you'd refresh our hearts. May our hearts be strengthened, as the New Testament writers often say, by a growing and deepening knowledge of God. So help us in that endeavor tonight, I pray. Make this a reality for us by the time we leave here tonight, if we make it through this night. As we've been studying in a lot of our small sub-congregations, we do pray you'd come quickly. Perhaps, what a great time for you to return. Send your son in the middle of a discussion of theology proper. So we look forward to your coming. Maranatha, come quickly. We want you to come, God, but in the meantime, we want to deepen our knowledge of you. Make this a great night, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. You're in Isaiah 40. Turn, if you would, to... Jeremiah chapter 23. And once you get there, jot this down. We're going to only cover three incommunicable, and I know John shared with you last week what we're talking about. These are things that make God exclusive. They're non-shared attributes. 
Things that the Bible expresses about God as God expresses about himself in the pages of Scripture that you and I just can't be these things. They may be motivation for us, but they're not meant to be templates for behavior. They are the uniqueness of a transcendent, otherly God. And the next one, this is number four on our list, number one for tonight, God is omnipresent. He's omnipresent. Jeremiah chapter 23 Jeremiah chapter 23. There's several texts we could go to, but I love the way this is put as he's talking about the false teachers that are prevalent in the life of of the southern tribes of Israel. He says in verse 21, Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 21 through 25. There we go. Key texts. You might want to jot that down at some point. He says, you know, these false teachers, I didn't send them. I didn't send, are you with me, Jeremiah 23, 21? I didn't send these prophets, yet they've run with their message. I did not speak to them, yet they, quote unquote, prophesied. Had they stood in my counsel, they would have proclaimed, this is a great verse for you aspiring preachers or teachers. This is it. This is the core of it. They would have proclaimed my words to my people, and they would have turned them from their evil ways and from their evil deeds. Now, with that indictment on the preaching of the day and God's concern for good and and right truth being proclaimed from the leaders and teachers of the people, he now introduces this attribute that I'd have some difference in this whole thing. He says, am I only a God nearby? Am I only a God that's, that's there when you're choosing to be near me? If you come to Jerusalem on a pilgrimage or you're there for some festival or feast, if, if, if you think I'm just hanging out on one corner of the, of the planet or of the universe, you're wrong. He says, and, and not a God far away? And, in other words, do you think that somehow you think, and now this is directed indirectly to the false, prophet, pro, false prophets, do you think you can do that without me being present there with you? Am I a God that's only a God nearby, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can anyone hide in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares Yahweh. Now again, seeing, we've been through this. God is spirit. He has no eyeballs. Photons are are not an issue for God. He doesn't have rods and cones and focusing lenses. He doesn't look at you. Looking at you is an anthropomorphism, we've talked about those, that express perception. I have perception of you not only when you look at me, quote unquote, or turn your attention to me or come to the temple or, or come near me when you are, quote unquote, far away from me, I perceive you because I'm there. I'm not just a God nearby. I'm a God way over there too. <laughs> I'm not just a God on, on the stage. I'm a God in the, in, the, in the janitor's closet. I'm not just a God, you know, in the stadium. I'm a God in the basement. I, I, I'm a God everywhere. I perceive everything. Next phrase, verse 24. Did, do I not, he says, fill, now there's a spatial term, again, spirit takes up no space, but this is a concept of perception and presence. Do I not fill heaven and earth? Now again, three kinds of heavens, and we've, we've talked about this too, you got the sky, where, where, where the birds fly, you've got the space, that's heaven, same word in Hebrew, uh, Shemayim, I think it is, if I recall right, and, and uh, same in the New Testament, the, the three three spheres. You've got the sky where the birds fly. You've got the space where the stars hang out. And then you've got the presence of God. I fill all of that. And we could talk astronomy for a while, but the concept is I'm, I'm everywhere present, perceiving everything. I fill heaven and earth. 
declares the Lord. And so if you think you can go and say something and God won't hear it, you're wrong, false teachers. Verse 25, I've, I've heard what the prophets are, are saying, you know. I, I've heard what the prophets say who prophesy lies in my name. And they say, I have a dream, I have a dream. They claim to hear from me, but they don't. I see that. I see it all. I see everything. Now, again, he doesn't see because he doesn't have eyeballs. He perceives because his awareness is present everywhere. He fills everything. Everything created heaven and earth. And I'll do this throughout this uh, list of, and study of, of God's attributes. I want to show you, uh, and perhaps, uh, and I've been assaulted with people reading The Shack lately. Are you familiar with that book? The Shack. Someone said, you had to preach a sermon on that. They said that in a staff meeting this week. And then I said, but then I'd have to read it. <laughs> I don't want to read it. I've read enough quotes from it. I don't want to read the whole thing. I want to show you throughout this uh, list of central passages or key texts that uh, Christ is expressing divine attributes, that he is expressing divinity in his life. He's not just uh, some, you know, uh, simple, dependent human uh, template of what it is to be, you know, a good Christian boy, because this is not what he's doing here in John chapter one, John chapter one. And I can't get away from texts that everybody's preached in my absence. Isaiah 40, John 1. Didn't Bobby preach on that this weekend? Look at verse 43. Have you turned there already? John 1, 43. Bobby did preach on this passage, didn't he? In part, at least. Nathaniel and Philip. John chapter 1, verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Verse 45. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, Philip said. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching him, he said of him, now here's a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. This guy speaks the truth. This guy's honest. Nazareth, you don't like it. It's, it's the armpit of, 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 uh, of, of the Middle East. Fine, you're going you're to say it. And you ever have one of these experiences? How do you know me? You, you know my name? Oh, I don't know your name. After, after Nathaniel asked that, Jesus said, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Now, Philip and Jesus having conversation, Nathaniel way over wherever, and whatever was going on there, it had something to do with a break under a, a tree, a fig tree, and it was something that Christ could not have known. It's not like he saw him, oh, I saw you when you were across the parking lot standing by the 56 Chevy over there. That's not it because of his response. Look at his response. Nathaniel declared, Rabbi, you have really good eyesight. You saw me way over there? That's not what he says. Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. What's the point? You couldn't possibly have seen where I was. Christ, by the way, demonstrates in his ministry the divine transcendent attribute of God in showing that he has perception, even in a bodily form. At times, he exercises the divine attribute of omnipresence. Bizarre, but biblical. Let's write down a definition, letter B. A definition. God is omnipresent. What do we mean by that? We mean that God is everywhere present. There's more though. Let's get more specific than that. He is cognizant of all things. 
Because again, he doesn't have eyes and he doesn't have a physical form, at least the Father and the Spirit, right? And there is nothing to get close to, but there's a perception, a cognizant ability to be aware of what's going on, of all things, in every location, if you want to talk spatially. And you could talk non-spatially, but that's our concern in our study of the attributes of God. Just like we could say he fills not only heaven and earth, but he fills everything else. But he fills heaven and earth. That's our concern. Because that's where we're hanging out and looking up to, heaven and earth. God is everywhere present, being cognizant of all things in every location. I know that doesn't, you know, take a PhD to tell you that. But that's the concept of presence, perception, potential. You can use that word too. Because when you're present, you have potential for for interface, for action, in the sense of nearness. We use those. Those are all spatial terms to relate to something that is not spatial. All right. Now, we've got some problems. And I say problems, problems with understanding this. I'll call them aspects of the attribute that we have to ponder. We've got to figure this one out. Because if you say that, that God is present everywhere, cognizant of all things, in all locations, all the time, uh, we've got some issues we've got to work through. And the first one is this whole set of places that describe God as dwelling, heaven, the temple of the Old Testament. Oh, and by the way, your life now is called the temple of the Holy Spirit. What's that all about? See what I'm saying? How do we deal with that? Heaven. He dwells in heaven, Psalm 115. God is in heaven and he does whatever he pleases. He says in Exodus, let them build me a tabernacle that would later be built as a permanent structure called the temple and I will dwell there. Or New Testament, right? Your life. The Bible says in in passages, even like Hebrews 13, you could look at the statements about your body, but Hebrews 13, God has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Well, you couldn't. It's impossible, right? But that's not the point. There is something about God where he says, well, uh, Paul says it in in, in 1 Timothy 6, he dwells in unapproachable light way off there, which no man can see, has seen or can see. It's, It's impossible. Now, is where is God, right? That's the question. And if you say everywhere, you would be dealing with the attribute of omnipresence. But is that biblical? Because the psalmist says God is in heaven. God is in your life. Is it different than the pagan down the street? Well, sure. But, but wait a minute. Present, omnipresent. Do you see the problem here? Let me introduce a phrase that I didn't find in any theological textbook, but it's the way I have filtered this concept throughout the scripture in in my training and and studies. Two words, focalized presence, focalized presence. You won't find that in any book probably because who knows why, but I think that's a phrase that's needed. There is something about God who decides in scripture to provide a focalized presence. Here's a word, usually ambiguous. People don't understand it. Uh, we, don't, we use it a lot. It's used a lot in the Bible, but people don't give it much thought. And that's the word glory, glory, okay? Doxa in the New Testament in Greek and kabod, kabod. Do you remember when the, when, when the, the glory left the temple? They called it ichabod, ichabod, out, gone. The glory has departed, Okay? The word doxa or, or kabod, here, here, here's the literal translation of that word, weight. That's the word, weight. Now let's think about that. <laughs> 
It's like God is everywhere, but then, now I know this is, seems blasphemous, but then he sits down, right? He's like there. Now I know he's everywhere, but there is a sense of the weight of God. They built the tabernacle and the glory of God filled it, right? And that was symbolized by something, by what? Smoke, right? And when the glory departed, at the, right prior to the Babylonian captivity, same thing. The smoke left and, and Ichabod, off went the, the weight of God. God left us. The concept of omnipresence is a general statement of God's cognizance of all things everywhere in every location, but it is not to be confused with his weight, his kabod. The glory of God decides to reside in you, and we'll call that a focalized presence. And when he says, I'll never leave you, in a sense, he's not present in your next door neighbor's life. Am I right? But he's present in your life. The, 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 the temple was a great you know, uh, square, the inner, inner sanctum, the square, and then the, the temple. It'd be a great place for racquetball or handball. It'd be a great place for that. But you couldn't play handball in the temple, right? Because that was where God dwelt. See? It was special. Your body, the Bible says that if someone destroys you, God will destroy them because you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. There's something different about you, even something sacred about your body. Because you have God's focalized presence. It's like God sits down. I know that's blasphemous, right? But the weight of God is focalized in, in, in a place. Does that detract from, does, like us, when we settle down somewhere, I have weird thoughts sometimes, really bizarre. Pray for my wife. But sometimes I'll just sit there and I'll think, we're in a house. It's so weird. We've built walls and like this is our space. And Carla say, so what? Right? But to me, that's so weird, right? We're in a, we're, we're, we're finite. We're, we even build the, that, that guy over there, he's got his own little four walls in his little space. And that's kind of his space. And then I got my space over here. And we got walls and we live in this space. When I have my space, I don't know what's going on in their space. And even if I do, it's through some weird means or mechanism that is imperfect. I could bug their home, right? And, and could listen in or buy those, you know, long-range microphones and, and kind of listen and get my binoculars out and say, I, I can see, yeah, ooh, what are they doing in there, right? Right before I get arrested. I could do, I could do all of that, but it's imperfect, it's like I don't live in there. If I lived in there, I would have a sense of, of presence. It's the same way with God. It is absolutely not the same way with God. He doesn't need an imperfect, correct me when I say those kinds of things, he doesn't need some imperfect communication of, of information or experience or potential. He is po I, if I went to your house and, and, and had dessert tonight, okay, I could sit there and I could take your dessert and I could throw it against the wall. I've got potential in your house, but I can't do that for my house because I'm in my little space with my little walls and, and I'm only affecting that place. God can somehow reside in a place, kabod, have weight there, focalized presence, and still be as potentially in any reality anywhere else in the world. He's omnipresent. It's a weird thing. That's why it's incommunicable. You can't do it.
and it makes God God. Now, I know we, I know we think the Old Testament people were just really infantile. They didn't understand that. They had their little place, and we're so enlightened, and, and we have what I like to call, because Lewis said it well, chronological snobbery. You've heard me say that before? They knew God didn't live in the, in the house they built. Turn with me real quickly to, to uh, 1 Kings chapter 8. I just want to let you know the temple builders understood this. There was no confusion here. They knew that the temple was going to be a place of focalized presence and that in no way contained God to where now he has to kind of peek around the corner of the temple to see what was going on out there in the outer court. They understood this. As a matter of fact, if you read the whole chapter, and I wish we had time for this, you would see it. It is, it constantly goes back and forth, mostly back to God's dwelling place in heaven. First Kings chapter 8, look at verse number 10. When the priest withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of Yahweh. And the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud. It got all foggy. They couldn't see anything. For the kabod, the weight of Yahweh, filled the temple. He sat down there, so to speak. Verse 12. Then Solomon said, Yahweh has said, uh, Yahweh has said that he would dwell in a dark cloud. Quoting now Exodus. I have indeed built a magnificent temple for you, a place for you to dwell forever. And that's where you start thinking, well, see there, they thought they put him in the box. They built a little house for him, and then he gets to go there. And it's a big house, a great house, biggest house in Israel, but God's now living there. Now, that's the way the, the, the pagan pantheon of, of, of idol worshipers believe. They had their, you know, Dagon had this temple in a place where the ancient Mesopotamian gods would line up. And they, they thought that, but not for this God. He's different than that. Drop down to verse 27. After all this discussion about the focalized presence of God and the kabod of God, the glory of God in the temple, he says in verse 27, but will God really dwell on earth? The heavens and even the highest heaven, that's God's throne room, cannot contain you. Well, we know you're not going to live here. I mean, you're living here, but you're not really living here. How much less if the living room of God in, in this faraway, bizarre other dimension doesn't contain him, how much less this temple I've built, which is the biggest building in Israel, I still, you're not going to live here. Here's what we're talking about with focalized presence. And by the way, you can add this to the, to the person, the Christian you can add this to uh, heaven, the throne room of God. Here's what we're talking about. Yet give, this is important, verse 28, attention. Give attention. I want responsiveness. I want the potential of your presence to be active and ready and immediate to your servant's prayer and plea for mercy, O Yahweh, my God. Hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying in your presence, right? Focalized presence this day. May your eyes be open toward this temple. Now, he doesn't have eyes, and they knew that. He's a spirit, right? But give your, your, your attention, your, your, your sensitivity to this place. Day and night, night and day. Uh, this place which you said, my name shall be there. Now we've even got a distance between ontological, who God is, and now a representation of God, name. You see the, the, the switch? so that you will hear the prayer of your servant, the, the prayer that your servant prays toward this place. Hear the supplication. God doesn't have ears. You know that, right? But be sensitive. Your potential, your, 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 your cognizance, let it be ready and just, it's just going to pop when, when something happens here. Hear the supplication of your servant and of your people, Israel, when they pray toward this place. 
hear from heaven. We know where you are. Your real focalized presence in the kabod ultimately is there from your dwelling place when you hear forgive. See, the Old Testament followers of Yahweh, they understood this. And yet you couldn't play handball in the temple because there was a, a weight of God there. A focal. Same thing for your body. That's why Paul argues don't, uh, don't go see prostitutes because when you join your body to a prostitute, it's not the sacred marriage relationship. It is, it's a cheapening of the use of your body. And don't you know that the Holy Spirit, the third person of the triune Godhead, lives in you? Don't, don't do that because the kabod of God is in you. The presence of God. Temple builders knew this. In, in, if you're note-taking, put, put down Acts 17. Same thing, New Testament affirms the same principle. Acts 17, verses 24 through 28. Acts 17, 24 through 28. God who made the heaven and the world and everything in it, Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in temples made by hands, built by hands, right? Matter of fact, here's the punchline there. He says, God wanted people to live in certain places, certain times, so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. And then he stops himself, though he's not far from each one of us. He's omnipresent. For in him we live and move and have our being. You remember that familiar passage. Paul's speech to the Athenian philosophers, the professors. Okay, now, does that make sense? Kind of, as much sense as it can make, right? Here's the second problem we have, hell. But if we understand the kabod of God, the cognizant, responsive potential of God, that when someone has a need, he meets that need, there are certain kabods and places and focalized presence of God, then we can start to maybe understand easily now the other side of it, which is the question everybody asks when I do those radio call-in things, right? And God, well, God is everywhere. He's in hell then, right? Well, not exactly, okay? Turn with me to the classic passage on this uh, concept, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. You partners, graduates, don't even need that because it is embedded in your memories. Which, by the way, partners workshop tomorrow night. So, yes, I got one person coming. We're unveiling, uh, speaking of the triune God, a chapter, a brand new, all new chapter 5. I don't know if that was on any of the ads or that word has gotten out, but I rewrote chapter 5 from the ground up. So we're going to pass that out several copies to you and your, your partner that you're taking through it. This is for people that have been through partners or are taking someone through partners or are about to take someone through partners. Uh, come tomorrow night and we will be meeting across the parking lot in the compass room, we call it. Schaefer Hall. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8. He will punish those who do not know God. Christ will. And do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus they will be punished, verse 9, with everlasting destruction and shut out, note this now, from the presence of the Lord. And now the theologian throws a flag on the play. Wait a minute, God is everywhere present. Now we get the concept of doxa or glory in the next phrase. And the, well, here's what, we, what we're talking about, the majesty of his power. See, God is good, and when he shows up to a party, it'll be a good one. See what I'm saying? When he's present, good things happen. When he chooses to remove his presence, he takes his majesty with him. When the kabod, the Ichabod, when the kabod left the temple, 
everyone cried because it was like, wow, now we're in for hard times. Because the blessing, the presence, the gifts, the goodness of God has now left us. Did, is God not paying attention? Well, he's cognizant in every place, all times, all locations, but he's removed his presence in that he's taken his glory or his majesty away. Hell is a place, and there's two parts to hell, where there is passivity. And by that I mean the punishment is God's not there anymore. And I preach this all the time, but people think hell's going to be great. I'll party with my friends, it'll be great. You're not going to party with your friends because everything you enjoyed about partying will not be there because God has been taken out of the, out of the equation, including light. Kind of need that, right? All that's gone. You'll be cast into outer darkness. Friends, there's no congregating of human personalities because that was a gift and a blessing of the majesty of God and God's removed himself. So now you're all alone in the dark. Not a great party. That's the problem with hell. Now there is an active sense of God's punishment, the retribution that he meets out on people according to their deeds. There will be punishment according to what you have done, the Bible says. But there's a passivity to it because God's presence is actively removed. To what extent? I don't know. Because if he wasn't in some way cognizant and active, he couldn't even have existence, right? That's a mystery I can't solve. But the majesty of his power, I know. That's what we mean by the presence of the Lord in this text is removed. Omnipresent, heaven and hell. Those are issues we have to reconcile with this statement that he is everywhere present. Important implications. We're going to cover three attributes tonight. I don't believe that. I hope we can do it. That was 40 minutes on one. We're not even done yet. Important implications. Because God is everywhere present, cognizant, all locations, all the time. And again, we've dealt with exceptions of his Ichabod, his presence and his absence, the withdrawing of his majesty. We can have confidence. Now, here's why. Because God's love is not blind. Okay? Follow me on this now. God's love is not blind. There's something about, you know, falling in love, right? Falling in love. And I remember uh, Carlin and I, we posted some funny old pictures on Facebook recently that all of you are laughing at um, when we dated in high school. But uh, uh, part of that process was this whole process of getting to know one another, right? And then the fear that she'll get to know me, right? Because, you know, well, I better get my best foot forward. And, you know, it's when the teenager washes his car for an hour before Friday night date and all that. All that takes place because I need her to see the best. I don't want her to see the real. If you're going to come over, man, I really want to straighten up the house and fix things. And mom, don't do that. And dad, would you not say that? And my room, I'm going to clean it up. Because I don't want her to know the real me, right? I want her to know the cool boyfriend me which I'm not, but I'm going to try. And then we talk about love is blind. There is a giddiness to whatever hormonal connections take place that now blinds the teenage girl from seeing the parts of the boy that really are horrible that did seep through the facade. And uh, she overlooks all that because she's in love. All of that is about knowledge that you either don't have or that you choose to ignore that makes that thing be what it is 
and you finally come to realize that you're both imperfect, right? Somewhere around the marriage, the beginning. And there settles in this reality of, yeah, this is great, but not as great as I thought it was when I was 16, right? That's bad. I know you're going to write me emails about that. I get the greatest wife in the world. But I'm just telling you, right? We're two imperfect people in an imperfect world and an imperfect relationship. Thank you. <laughs> Pray for me because that didn't come out the way I wanted it to. <laughs> Here's the great thing about God. He's not a giddy 16-year-old girl. He knows everything because he has been present in your past the whole time. There are things that you don't want your girlfriend to find out about, right? You want to make sure there are things in your past you don't want her to know. Here's the thing. God has lived with you the whole time. There's no hiding. It's like marrying your sister, right? You never do it because she knows what a creep you are, right? And it's icky to boot, but the point is she knows you. She looks at your girlfriend going, oh, brother, if you only knew him right? God is worse than your sister because he not only sees how you act, he looks in your brain and he knows everything that goes on. Now think this one through. And here's the passage. We won't take time to turn there. But 1 Timothy chapter 1 verses 12 through 16, Paul amazingly makes a statement like this. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who's given me strength and considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. I'm thinking, wait a minute, that's pretty arrogant. Even though I was a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. He goes on to talk about he was the worst of all sinners, but he is confident in his ministry. And the reason is because he's not afraid God's going to find out anything about his past, right? God knows me completely. And the love that he expresses, or as Paul puts it, lavished on him is done with full knowledge, Because God's love is not blind. Because everything you've ever done, his presence has been there. Maybe not in the focalized kabod level that it is post-conversion, but God knows and has experienced everything in your past. And the weird reaction of the Apostle Paul is confidence. And he tells Timothy to do the same thing. Stop being timid. Be confident. I don't have time to explore all that, but hopefully you saw the connection. The presence of God in my past makes me confident about whatever God has called me to do because he knows me better than anyone because he lived my life with me, right? I know that's humanly speaking. Secondly, this may be more obvious. There is comfort derived from the presence of God because, let's just call it this, God's nearness. If God really loves me, Right, which the Bible says he does to the fullest, John 13, then the concept is that now he says, I am going to be with you. Worse than that, or more intimate than that, I will be in you, he says, as, a, as the Spirit is sent from the Father, and I will be always there and I will never leave you. I will never orphan you. The concept of God's nearness, even to the Old Testament saints, was it's an amazing thing. Psalm 139 is the chapter you need to write down there. If we had time, we would explore the whole thing, which was my plan, but, but we don't have time for that. Psalm 139. You know the text, right? You've searched me. You know me. You know when I sit. You know when I rise. You perceive my thoughts far away. And he ends up saying things like, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. Right? 
I can't go anywhere. You're there everywhere. You hem me in. And a lot of commentators see that as a negative. He's, he's, this is like a security blanket for him. And it leads him to confidence and comfort and some sense of protection in his life. Thirdly, vigilance. Important implications of God's attributes of omnipresence. Well, I'm confident because God has lived everything with me. He knows me, and whatever he has done in terms of his love, it's there because it's full knowledge. And he says, now I'm going to be with you. Every part of my future, my past he knows, my future he promises to walk through it with me. And it's a double-edged sword because he's present (laughs) and watching. Passage for you, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. Punchline there is nothing in creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him who has no eyes. You understand the the cognizant perception of God. It's all laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. That's the double-edged sword. I wish we had time to explore those further, but God is omnipresent. What does that mean for me on a daily basis? I can be confident. God loves me and he fully knows me. That's amazing. Comfort. He's with me. Like, I mean, Joshua 1, that's our men's retreat this year, right? Never leave me, never forsake me. Be with you. I'll strengthen you. Don't be afraid. Vigilance. He's also with me. That means I better be careful how I behave because I will have to give an account to him one day. Number two, God is eternal. God is eternal. Key texts. Number one, Psalm 90. Psalm 90. Psalm 90, verse 1. You just write it down. I'll read it for you. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, and that's the oldest thing they could point out, them old rocks, that mountain, you brought forth the earth and the world from everlasting, from eternity, to everlasting, to eternity. You are God. And then we find the familiar phrase that is repeated in the New Testament, and that is a thousand years mm, like a day in your sight. And, uh, you know, vice versa, Peter says. It's nothing for you. Time is nothing for you. Time, you are unaffected by it. You were here in eternity past. You will be there in eternity future. We will turn you to this one, though. Revelation chapter 1. I want you to see the triune God present in this entire paragraph Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 through 8, being stated as the God who is and who was and who is to come. There's the phrase that is used in Scripture to describe the eternality of God, unconstrained by time, exceeding time, supra-time, supra-chronological. He's above the concept and fabric of time. Revelation chapter 1, verse 4, let's start there. John, this is the intro to the book, To the seven churches in the province of Asia, modern-day Turkey, grace and peace to you from him who is, he's present now and and, and alive and active and cognizant, who was, always was, and who is to come. That's who we're talking about here. Grace and peace to you from him. And he says, and from, do you see this weird sentence? The seven spirits before his throne. Do you have a footnote on that in your text? What does it say? Sevenfold spirit. Okay, this is bizarre. But seemingly, and most people would agree, this has something to do with the perfection and the, the completeness of, of the Spirit. Referred to here as the seven spirits of God or the sevenfold Spirit. Though he's eternal as well. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn, the prototokos, right? The unique one from the dead and the ruler 
of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood. He made us to be a kingdom of priests, to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Looking, look rather, verse 7, he is coming with the clouds. Who is? Christ is. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Christ, right? And all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So it shall be. Amen. Is this in red, you red letter Bible readers? The next phrase? I am the Alpha. And the Omega, the A and the Z, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty, the sevenfold spirit, complete, perfect, forever, the God who is, the Father who is, who is, who was, who is to come, who is, who was, who is to come, and now Christ, the Alpha, the Omega, who is, who was, who is to come, the Almighty, called God, right there, by the way, in the middle of verse 8. We're talking about Christ expressing the divine attributes, the incommunicable divine attributes. Here's a statement of the eternality of the Son, and perhaps an inference of the Spirit. Definition, let's define it as best we can. It's simple, these aren't hard, especially as it relates to something that's not cloaked in spatial analogies. God has existed and will exist forever. God has existed forever and will exist forever, having no time limitations. He is supra-chronos, supra-time. He's above it, he's outside of it. Having no beginning and no end. That's weird. He's without time constraints. Okay, let's try and make sense of this as quickly as we can. Aspects of this attribute we need to ponder. A couple things. First one, let's start with this one. It is his name. Incommunicable attributes set God apart as something other than us. He is uniquely God. No one else can say this but the triune God that you are eternal. The angels can't say it. And the cockroach living under the counter can't say it. Thus, it's been rightly said that the distinction or distance between the glory or the godness of God and Gabriel and Michael, the archangels, and the cockroach under your sink is exactly the same distance. There's an infinite chasm between the two. Because no one else in the universe except the triune God can say, I have always been. Which, by the way, is the word... Did I put this down? No. Is the word... Uh, in Hebrew, Hahweh, Hahweh, does that sound familiar? God chose that as his name and added Yah at the beginning. Yahweh, you've heard of that, right? 5,800 times in the Old Testament. Yahweh, Yahweh is the verb to be. That's why in, in, in um, uh, pff, Exodus, second book of the Bible, Exodus chapter four, when he says, Moses says to God, who shall I say sent me? Remember that passage? He says, tell him the I am that I am sent, sent you. And then he says, that's what my name is. And it will be known this way for generations. I am Yahweh. I am the I am. I'm the eternal one. I always exist in the present tense. In Greek, there's five tenses. And when this translates into the Greek New Testament, the concept is in this eternal tense. This, what we call in Greek, the first year I studied it, this is not Bible stuff. This was at the university in the, in the classics department I studied. They called it the continuative tense. And you put the word am in a continual, continuous tense, there's nothing that qualifies. Nothing. Continue to exist and have existed? God chose that as his name. I am. No one can say that. You can say you are for a while, right? But you had a beginning. He is the I am. In the New Testament... Jesus, as long as we're making these parallels, made that clear to the Pharisees, and they wanted to kill him for the statement. 
Remember, uh, what was this? Uh, John chapter 8, verses 57 and 58. The whole conversation about sons of Abraham. And, and he says, you know, sons of Abraham, no big deal. As a matter of fact, here's, here's Jesus. Can you imagine this? He, he speaks as though he was around in Abraham's time. And, and they say to him, you're not even 50 years old yet. Uh, and Jews said to him, and you've seen Abraham? Remember his response? He said, I tell you the truth. That's the way he sets up a profound statement. I tell you the truth, truly, truly, amen, amen. I say to you, here's what I'm going to tell you. He says, before Abraham, Ganes, before he came to be, ego ami, I am, continue to tense, the existing one. Before Abraham came to be, everything came to be. He says, I didn't, ego ami, I am the always one. Which, by the way, in Hebrew is Hahweh, which is God's name, with the Yah at the beginning, Yoth at the beginning, Yahweh. He's claiming to be something that has always existed. When did you start existing? You can put a date on the, uh, on the calendar, if not on the birthday, conception date, if someone knows that date. You came to be before Abraham came to be. Priest Abraham, Geneste ego ami. Before Abraham came to be, I am continually existing. Now, that is, number two, humanly incomprehensible. That is humanly incomprehensible. Because as mathematician friends tell me, that is the problem of infinity, right? And it doesn't add up. It's how I like to put it. I put it this way. How long does it take to, how long does it take to crawl out of a bottomless pit forever, Right? If there's no beginning, there's no progress. And if you are the existing one, the Ami, the Yahweh, the one who is, then you had to have a Ganes, a beginning, and you're saying you didn't? Impossible. One plus an infinite number is, doesn't make any sense, right? Is infinity. I bring this up, and I like to point this out, the incomprehensibility of the eternality of God, because we're stuck with this problem, whether you're an atheist, an agnostic, a theist, Jehovah Witness, a Mormon, I don't care what you are. You've got a problem with the eternality of anything. Because we're here on the timeline, we assume a beginning. The problem of infinite regression or infinity is a problem. And we're struggling over the Trinity. That's a minor problem compared to this one. That's all I'm trying to say. We're claiming something very unique and otherly transcendent about God. Important implications. Practically speaking, how about security? eternality of God. Now, I'm trying to be as practical and as pastoral as I can be. And Paul says, you know what? God knew everything about me and still put me into service. Therefore, I can be confident. At some point when a hot chick in high school is dating you, you can think, wow, how long can I keep this going? Because one day she's going to find out what a jerk I really am. And then she's going to dump me. Can't say that about God because he had full knowledge. He's been with you for the whole time. He is is worse than your sister. He knows your thoughts. Here's now the eternality of God who sits super chronos outside of time now let's make this pastorally practical he knows your future let's just talk in those terms we'll talk sovereignty we'll talk it you know ad nauseum in the last week we meet together on this topic but from a human perspective he he knows your future he looks at peter and he says hey when peter says i'll go with you where are you going well i I, you, you can't follow well i'll go anywhere with you i'll die with you and jesus turns around and says what no he says, before morning, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. Christ knew that and still picked him. And in John 21, you know what was going on in John 21? 
Peter's out fishing. Well, they didn't fish like that. He's out fishing. And he's like, I don't want to do this thing. Jesus has to make a special appearance, and he had better things to do that morning, I guarantee you, to show up to make Peter breakfast and say, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you like me? Remember that whole thing? And the response of Peter was less than stellar, and Christ still said, then do what? Feed my sheep. What was Peter's mental gymnastic? I denied you in front of a servant girl in Caiaphas' court. I'm a loser. And Jesus' response was, I told you that before you even did it. I knew that. I said, you are Peter. On this rock, I'm going to build my church. Forget the whole Catholic-Protestant debate on the passage. The bottom line is, he becomes the quarterback of the first church, and Christ called it for him in early in his, in his earthly ministry. First time the word church shows up, he says, Peter, you're going to quarterback. Peter goes, well, now look at what happened to me. Do you see the, the issue here? Here's the deal. Every failure in your future, God has already encountered it. Think that one through. We encounter it in time. He experiences it like it's now. Think that one through, right? I put it this way, security, because God already encountered your failures. And we finite humans can't get over that because when we experience them in the little, you know, playlist of life, we go, oh, look at what happened. And we think somehow God is like us. And he goes, oh, look what you did, Peter. I can't even believe it. Well, wait a minute. In Peter's case, he told him he was going to do it. Which, by the way, he could tell you the failures of your future. Thankfully, he doesn't. That would be kind of depressing. But the point is, he's already called you. This is the whole, the whole debate about eternal security is laughable in some ways. Because people think it's a surprise to God, the things that they encounter. And look what I did. God didn't love me anymore. And he's going to leave me. Like he's surprised by your failure. Think about that, right? He knows before it happened. And we look at marriage that is lived out by two people in finite time. And the failure of someone in the marriage and the other person, well, now I have to decide whether I'm going to stay married. Right? I mean, that touches close to home for a lot of you here. Now think about this. You married the person. You had the choice to marry the person. And you already saw that stuff ahead of time. That would change things, right? God did that with you. Think about that. Jeremiah is there thinking about going to preach, and what does God say to him? I set you apart for this before you were even born, when you were still in your mother's womb. The juxtaposition of John 13 and John 21 is an amazing reality. Jesus calls Peter's failure. Peter is hung up on his failure in chapter 21. In chapter 13, God said, it's coming. He knew it ahead of time. And put that in connection with Matthew 16, and you've got a God who knew exactly what he was doing. Peter needs to feel secure in that. I know your failures surprise you. They don't surprise God. Number two, peace, peace. We briefly referenced, I'd hoped to analyze it, but we didn't have time. Psalm 139, verse 16 says, all the days ordained for me were written in your book. God doesn't have a library, right? Doesn't have books. This is all anthropomorphic language, right? They were all mapped out before one of them came to be. Put it this way. As I live out my life on this temporal timeline, God sits above it. He's supra chronos. He's above time. Everything about my future is mapped out. I know that creates a logical conundrum. More on that in our last week, 13, whatever that is, two months from now. But you can't get away from the fact 
that all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Think about it this way. God knows exactly the day you're going to die. Do you believe that? Now, you're going to die. Unless Christ comes back, you're going to die. Before that time, you're going to die. Now, think of it this way. You are immortal until that day, right? What does that do for us? Well, it doesn't lead us to test the Lord or jump off of any pinnacles of any temples or anything. But it should lead us to incredible peace. I think of that all the time. Have you ever been really scared? I mean, there are times I've been really scared of things. And then I think to myself, I'm immortal until the day of my death. This might be it. But if it is, then that's it. This is leading us to the front door, the threshold of the discussion on God's sovereignty. But for now, let's at least put Psalm 139, verse 16, together with Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10. Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10 which we didn't have time to read. I meant to intersect with that passage also, but God says, I'll make known through his prophets primarily the end from the beginning. From ancient times, what is still to come. God's mapped it out. God, if he tarries in sending his son, he can look, he's experiencing your funeral right now. Think about that one. Because he's ever present on the timeline. It's happening. Do you see what I'm saying? He is super, supra chronos. God is eternal. God is immutable with minutes to go. God is immutable. Key texts. How about this one? There are so many, and I wasn't going to put some of the obvious ones, but there's, there's good reason to put this. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. Don't need to turn there because the first part of the passage is all I'm concerned about in, in this discussion at least. The context is great. and If we had time, we'd look at that because it brought God back to the covenant that he had made and the forgiveness that's available. But immutability. I, Yahweh, do not shana. Sorry, shana. <laughs> shana. Shana means change. I don't alter. I don't vary. Did you know that's what shana meant? Shana? I don't vary. I don't, uh, I, don't, I don't change. I'm the same. And by the way, as long as we're making Christological parallels, let's jot down Hebrews 13, 7, and 8. And you know that one by heart, right? He says, remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Many of them were persecuted. Some had died some cases. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Because Jesus, he says now in verse 8, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The consistency of God with your leaders that have gone on before you and died, and the real apex of that was chapter 11, the heroes of the faith, is the same God who hasn't changed now. And the focus in Hebrews is Christological. The Christ factor Peter, or Paul said rather about the, even in the, in the Exodus, they drank from, from Christ, right? He was the manna, different analogy, but he says he's the same. Definition, real quick. God is unchanging, having no variation, okay? Now here, here's the, 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 the pertinent and germane part to a lot of discussion today, and no growth. God doesn't grow or evolve, now, that's become a nasty word, but we're all evolving in our personality, in our character, in our life, in our knowledge. We are gaining and changing and whatever. God doesn't. As Tozer said, if he were to change, what would he change from? Right? Would he get worse or better? Become more apt? More insightful? Less? He can't change. Because he is the perfection of all that is perfect. And the Bible states it clearly. He is, is unchanging. God is unchanging, having no variation, growth, or evolution in his divine character and all aspects of it, all subcategories of it as well. Aspects of the attribute to ponder 
for all of our open theist friends, we need to accept the mystery of a God who does not grow. And I want to focus on that word because that is the hot button discussion in the ivory towers of seminaries today. Does God grow, either in his knowledge or experience? Open theism, as I think I've related in this setting before, is, is the belief that God doesn't have a complete picture of the future. He's the best odds maker in Vegas. That's how open theists see him. And I don't mean to you know, look down on their view, but that's, how, that's what they believe. He's great at making odds on what's going to happen, but he doesn't know it because he hasn't fully experienced it yet. So God is, is growing, evolving. He's living this out with us. He's in the timeline with us. He is experiencing it with us. The future is open. Not fully, but philosophically and theologically. But we need to accept the mystery of a God who doesn't, and it's going to impact our discussion of theology, I'm sorry, sovereignty. So we'll draw back on this statement right here, the mystery of a God who does not grow later. But we're almost out of time. So let's just do this. Let's just say no to the humanized God. When we don't see God as transcendent, if we don't see him as either immutable or eternal or omnipresent, put those three together, then you somehow bring him into the experience of a temporal reality. He gets inside of time now with us, and we make him out to be like us. You can add the shack to this list, since that got, you know, perked up a couple of you at least. The shack, in what I've read of it, does nothing more than bring God into a humanized container. I'm not talking about the little cutesy ways that that, that he packaged it. You know, that God's the mother and all that. I'm not talking about that. But I've read enough of it to know that the end result in this relational God is that he is a relational humanized God. He is not the, the transcendent immutable God. The little that I've read, at least, of that popular work fits nicely with modern open theism. And we need to say no to a humanized God in any form. That's why value number three at Compass Bible Church is we want to value a high view of God. Because as I've often said, if you get, find yourself in God's presence tonight, I think your view of God will go up, not down. Right? So I don't think we can overshoot this one. We need a higher view of God. And a lot of things that are very palatable to the masses and it'll sell great in the Christian bookstore are things that make God more like us. Oh, that makes sense. I get it now. Well, if you get it now, see, then we're not dealing with biblical theology. We're dealing with humanistic philosophy regarding deity. Because as I said at the beginning of this study, a real good study of theology proper simply confuses us on a higher level. And that's what we want. It's refreshing to the mind. All right, implications. Important implications. Number one, assurance. God does not change. And the emphasis and application of this attribute throughout the scripture is that he is not flaky, moody, or temperamental. We have a rock-solid, consistent God, and in that regard, he's predictable. Now, he's not predictable in that he acts like us, but he's predictable in that he acts perfectly. Will not the God or the judge of the whole earth do justly? He does what he is anticipated to do. And all this frou-frou, flowery, feminized theology about God surprising us with something bizarre, that's not the God of the Bible. He's rock-solid and consistent. Jesus, the same yesterday and forever, immutable. He does not change. Which, by the way, a good study of Malachi 3 will put that in the perspective of where that statement came from. A God who is faithful to his covenant and even in forgiveness is rock solid. 
Hebrews 6. I should turn you to this really, really quick. Last passage I'll turn you to. Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. Let's see one of the frequent pastoral implications of God's immutability. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 16. We'll read 16, 17, and 18. Verse 16. Just talked about the Abrahamic covenant. God's promise in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, and Genesis 18 of the blessing of the world. The Messiah would come through the seed of of Abraham, as it's put. Galatians expands and elucidates that. He says, men swear by someone greater than themselves. Hebrews 6, 16. Is that right? Is that there? Okay. And the oath confirms what is said, and it puts an end to all arguments. That's why, and though no one pays much attention to it, although they will one day, put their hand on the Bible, swear, tell the whole truth, which they rarely do, it seems, in those trials. But they're trying to say, God, slam me if I tell a lie. We're swearing by someone greater who can hurt us, right? Now, because, verse 17, God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, salvation through the Abrahamic descendant. That's us, right? He confirmed it with an oath, right? The unchanging nature of his purpose. God did this so that by two unchangeable things. Now, the focus in the context is oaths are unchangeable. You swear, and and that binds you to it. That's an unchangeable thing, an oath. And God didn't have anybody greater to swear by, so he swore by himself. What's the other unchangeable thing? It's the next statement, right? We've already seen the unchanging nature of his purpose. That's not the thing in view here. It's the other thing. It's, It's impossible for God to lie. He's always going to fulfill what he says by those two unchangeable things, a God who cannot lie and a God who doubled up the promise with an oath who has a purpose that is not going to vary. That's the third thing if you want to start counting them in verse 17. Then, here's the pastoral concern. We who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly assured or encouraged. We have this hope, look at this, as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. I'll just give you one example. You sin big and you go to God and you say, God, I'm sorry, I blew it, it was wrong. The promise of God is this, and he always reminds us of his immutability or his faithfulness in the middle of these kinds of statements. He says, hey, you know what? If you say you're without sin, you're a liar. But if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just, because he makes promises he can't break them, to forgive our sins, that's the promise, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's think about that for a second. How many of us pray the prayer of forgiveness? We ask for forgiveness and cleansing and reconciliation and restoration, and we don't believe it. You understand the immutability of God, that God cannot lie. Even if he wanted to, he can't. If he said in his perfect knowledge of everything, if you confess it, I'll forgive you, he knew exactly what the sins would be that would be confessed, and he has provided forgiveness in Christ. And he says... I have to do it because I'm faithful and I'm just. Those two things together are immutability. I don't change to forgive us, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Romans 11, if you're a note taker, verse 28 and 29. We won't go there now, but at least you can jot them down, look them up later. Romans 11, 28 and 29. God's decisions, his election, his gifts, his call are irrevocable. All right, another one, letter D. Homogeny. <laughs> what? I'm not using this in the medical sense or the biological sense. 
or the evolutionary sense, homogeny, homo, the same, genes, right? Origin, same family, right? Homogeny. When we think of the immutability of God, that God is the same and he does not change, it does something for my study of this book. Because I start, or the parenting of my children. Because I start to recognize both ancient and future people are relating exactly to the same God who has not evolved. He has not changed. Adam and Eve's encounter with God is the same exact God that if Christ tarries, my great-great-great-grandchildren will be faced with. Same exact God. And that does something to humanity. It makes us feel the familial homogeny of, of, of connectedness. And it makes me read this book with a whole different kind of, of connection in my heart. David's struggle, Peter's denial, right? Timothy's timidity, God's response. These are not caricatures. These aren't, these aren't some kind of, of, of comic book discussions of ancient brainless people. This is the same struggles my kids will go through because God does not change. If you want a passage for that, jot this one down. Psalm 90, verse 1, we've already quoted it. He says, you have been our dwelling place, God, right? Throughout all generations. That's the Psalm of Moses. It's the oldest Psalm in the Psalter. And he says, you know what? And that was Moses speaking. And in the middle monarchy of of Israel, they put it in the Psalter. That whole span from Moses to David and David to Christ and Christ to us He's been our dwelling place, the same exact God. The Bible, the relation of God to those people, unfortunately, modern commentators and theorists and theologians want to make it out to be something different. But the homogeny of my connection with God, the potential, the failure, the the struggles, it's exactly the same because God is immutable and people haven't changed. And we're out of time. Let's pray. God, please help us to work our minds to understand you better. So that, as we began tonight, we might sense in our hearts a kind of cleansing of our spirit and our brain that we would find that energy being energized and invigorated by deepening and focused thoughts of you. God, thank you for this time and for this study. Thank you for six weeks so far of digging into this material and grateful, God, that you're bringing people out for this. But I pray, as we think about the thousands and I mean, hundreds of people, just almost 2,000 people that would come on a weekend. I know there are a lot of them that need to be here, probably need to be focusing their thoughts on a Thursday night on you. Pray that the second half of this, we're about almost halfway through here. I guess we're halfway through. Pray the second half of our Compass Night here in the fall of 2008 would be even more exciting, more, more full, more energized than the first half. Let this study grow, I pray that we might be people that think rightly about you and respond rightly to you as we rightly connect with your attributes. We thank you, God, for being an everywhere present, always existing, never changing God. In Jesus' name we pray.